On a warm spring afternoon in DC, a big white coach pulls up in front of Union Station. Tired-looking people step out, smiling, stretching, and looking around at the Freedom Bell and the gleaming capital rising behind it. Most are in family groups and carrying backpacks. They look just like tourists. In fact, they're migrants from countries as far-flung as Brazil and Congo, apprehended crossing America's southern border. In the past few weeks, some 35 such buses have brought nearly a 1,000 people on the 30-hour journey to the capital. They were chartered by Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, as a message of protest. Biden refuses to come see the mess he made at the border, he tweeted, so Texas is bringing the border to him. But immigrant rights groups, and many of the migrants themselves, have praised the move as an act of generosity. And realising the unfortunate optics of charging the Texas taxpayer for free rides for the undocumented, Greg Abbott has started a crowdfunding campaign. It's so far raised more than $100,000. It's high political theatre and just one symptom of the problems that have dragged immigration back to the top of the political agenda. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how to untangle the immigration mess in America. President Biden came to office promising, like many before him, to fix America's immigration system. But border crossings are at record highs. While his reforms have floundered, states are going their own way. And a third of voters believe there's a plan afoot to replace them with people brought in from abroad. Why do so many Americans have such far-fetched ideas about how the system works? And what should undocumented migrants actually be entitled to in America? With me to talk about the politics of immigration, the immigration system, and perhaps even how to fix it are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloon. Charlotte, how are things with you? I'm fine personally. As we've all been discussing together offline this week, it was a really horrific week in New York and in the country broadly because of this shooting in Buffalo and in Southern California. The Buffalo attack is shocking, even though it's not surprising. You know, these attacks seem to happen again and again. But the way in which we understand some of the motivation behind the attack with this person having written so many pages explaining the conspiracy theories, uh, which caught his imagination, I think does help us understand the connection between really vicious rhetoric on the national stage and then horrible, deadly violence in, in communities around the country. That's right. And we'll be talking about the great replacement theory, which is an idiotic idea that was in that disgusting manifesto later in this program. Idris, I don't know about you, but reading and listening to news about the shooting, I mean, it made me cross and sad. And also I was unable to summon my usual optimism that America can fix most of its own problems eventually when it comes to mass shootings like this. I'm with you there. I think the last time that I 
felt optimism about America doing something about its gun issue was after the horrible shooting in Newtown. And ever since then, it's been, you know, we've seen so many. We've seen, you know, when Obama was president, the attack in Charleston on that church. We've seen Parkland and now this shooting and, you know, not that much changes, unfortunately, no matter how good a speech the president makes. There's this feeling of foreboding that uh, there'll be another one, inevitably. Yes, and it's doubly sad because of that. It remains to me extraordinary, really, that America collectively chooses, in some sense, to impose this cost on its society. Anyway, let's leave that subject here for now. I'm sure it's one, unfortunately, that we'll have to come back to before too long. The big political news this week has been a set of primaries which took place on Tuesday. Idris, what do you make of the results we have so far from those? I found actually the governor's race in Pennsylvania to be the most striking and I think disturbing electoral outcome where Doug Mastriano, who's a state senator, who's on the grounds of the Capitol for the January 6th attack, who maintains that he didn't enter, but was a big stop steal proponent, is now the Republican gubernatorial nominee. Uh, if he wins in that state, uh, he'll be the person who would pick the Secretary of State. And um, I think that in a situation in which Trump were to run in 2024, lose Pennsylvania again, a governor like him, I think, could provoke a major constitutional crisis by refusing to certify electoral votes. So that was the most striking result for me personally. Uh, it wasn't surprising that John Fetterman won the Democratic nomination to be the U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania, but it was surprising that he did so a few days after suffering a small stroke. We still don't know who his opponent is going to be. Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick are locked in a very tight battle to be the Republican nominee. As a student of politics, Idris, can I ask you a question? So as we all do, I subscribe to emails from the DNC and RNC to see what they're up to. And basically, immediately, I got an email from Fetterman that was addressed OMG, comma, Charlotte, in Fetterman's voice, and then said, I, I wanted to send Yins a quick note to introduce myself. And then he went on to ask for donations. What is Yins? What is that? Oh, Yins is uh, Pennsylvania speak for y'all. Does that fall within the Economist style guide? Can we start using yins in the paper? I think we should introduce it. If yins are as fascinated by Pennsylvania politics as we are, then please do go back in our feed and listen to the Welcome to Pennsylvania episode. It's a race we're going to be checking in on again and again before the midterms. There's a lot to talk about this week, but in this episode, we're going to be focusing on immigration, which is top of the agenda politically. As we record this, we're expecting a federal judge to rule on whether the Biden administration will need to postpone the lifting of a pandemic era measure called Title 42, which allows migrants to be expelled at the border on public health grounds. The fight over this is adding to the confusion at the southern border, which is seeing record numbers of people attempting to cross. In April, a new high of 234,000 attempted that crossing. Our correspondent, Alexandra Suich-Bass, has been back to the border to find out more. A few minutes before five in the morning, I'm in a McAllen Hotel elevator with a member of the National Guard. All over South Texas, the hotels are full of military personnel to help with the high numbers of people arriving at America's southern border. I am. Good morning. How are you? Richard. You look annoyingly bright-eyed right now. You got the right. The reason I'm awake this early is to meet Richard Douglas. He has a baseball cap and a serious manner. 
He spent 26 years in law enforcement, 12 of them in Border Patrol. And he now runs security for the East Foundation, one of the largest landowners in South Texas. We have left urban life and we are in the the thick of South Texas brush country. Uh, To the west of us, you could probably go 40 or 50 miles and not hit another road. We drive about 100 miles north to one of the East Foundation's ranches in Rivera, Texas. Even this far from the border, there's constant foot traffic of people trying to navigate their way up north undetected, usually with the help of a coyote or guide. At a minimum, they, if they walked in a straight line, have gone in the neighborhood of 18 to 20 miles on foot in a straight line, and they're definitely not traveling in a straight line. So, right. uh, and in this kind of country, with it being so sandy, uh, typically they're going to cover maybe two miles in an hour. So you can imagine this time of year how difficult that is physically. No matter which side of the border issue you fall on, being near the border makes it impossible to ignore the humanitarian challenge. Every day here, people are risking their lives to enter the United States. If and when Title 42 is lifted, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, has said as many as 18,000 migrants could cross the southern border daily. Every indication is that it's going to be another record-setting year on top of last year. So all those people are you know, in the country. And from the Border Patrol's perspective, they're going to be overwhelmed from a processing and a manpower standpoint if those numbers are hold true to what's expected. Have you ever seen morale like it is right now? I, I, I would say no. My focus is not Title 42. Our response has always been to respond to the families that are allowed to remain in the United States and to continue to, to assist them to move forward uh, into a safe process, you know. And so, Sister Norma Pimontel runs Catholic Relief Services of the Rio Grande Valley, which receives families as soon as they're released from Border Patrol. A year ago, most were Central Americans. But on the day I'm visiting, the majority are from Haiti, At the center, they can get clean clothes, a warm meal, rest, and prepare for the next leg of their journey. Like many others working on humanitarian efforts on the border, Sister Norma has been frustrated by how little change has come under President Biden. There hasn't been a big move to make in policy to change things. You know, it's it's mostly a way to control the border and to, and keep people from entering the United States. Has it been a disappointment to you that more hasn't changed? I would like to see any administration to really establish policies that provide pathways, legal pathways that people can enter the United States without having to be forced to go through a river to risk their lives, you know. And In my conversations with people on the border, I heard this again and again, that the lack of legal pathways to enter America is pushing people to enter illegally or to try to come through the asylum system. And that a lack of clear policy from D.C. compounds the damage. Because I, we definitely need to establish something so that 
the message is clear and, and people don't just come with hopes that they're going to enter without having no clarity as to uh, what to expect and thinking that, oh, I will get to into the United States so that people don't just make these journeys that are so uh, detrimental for them, you know. The mixed messaging is even angering some Democrats. Congressman Henry Cuellar represents Laredo on the Texas border. Well, uh, is this good for Democrats? Absolutely, it's not. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of Republicans and they said, we cannot believe, Henry, that the White House has given us our narrative. I mean, they keep playing to our narratives. What are they thinking? I can close my eyes and listen to a Democrat and Republican. I'll know who's a Democrat and who's a Republican. A Democrat will talk about all the push factors, poverty, crime, uh, criminal organizations, drought, hurricanes. Those are the push factors. Republicans will only talk about the pull factors, what policies you have at the border. You have to implement both. And if the administration is only talking about the push factors, then this is not going to be a very comprehensive plan. But ultimately, it's up to Congress to create legal pathways to enter the United States and dissuade illegal immigration at the border, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it would be a no-brainer that we need a guest worker plan that works because, I mean, where are we right now? Unemployment 3.6. Every place that I travel to, my congressional district, or even when I go to D.C., uh, we see for hire, for hire, for hire. So, yes, we need people. Uh, we passed it in the House, but in the Senate, we need 60 votes. And unfortunately, we cannot get 10 Republican senators to go along with us. Once again, this election year, anxieties over the border and immigration are proving potent topics to rile up voters. But few on the border are optimistic that even under this pressure, Washington can produce the reforms that are so desired and so overdue. Charlotte, let's start with you. Can you explain why there's this current frenzy over Title 42 and what hinges on it? Yes. So it was invoked during the pandemic and it allows the authorities along the border to expel migrants because of concern over COVID-19, that they don't have to hear an asylum claim first. So before Title 42, border authorities would process migrants under a a title called Title 8, and they would consider an asylum claim. The Trump administration had people whose claims were being weighed. Uh, They would have to wait in Mexico until the claim was heard. And that has continued under a federal order during the Biden administration. And the idea is if Title 42 is lifted... There's concern that there will be an additional wave of migrants and the system, which is already clogged, will become much more so. Idris, if you're a Fox News viewer, then you will have been seeing on your screens for some time that the border, the southern border, is out of control and that Democrats favour an open borders policy. Could you give us a quick fact check on what's actually been going on on the southern border? Well... If you look at annual data on how many migrants have attempted to cross the southern border, you will in fact see that 2021 was the highest year on record. Approximately 1.66 million uh, people attempted to cross the border then, which is five times as much as the 300,000 or so who tried it um, just five years ago. So there is a huge surge. It uh, is the record and it matches um, a, a record previously seen before 2000. And I think that 
all of the Title 42 debate uh, that's going on now is a bit of a proxy war over an immigration system that um, isn't really working. So what happens when people arrive and ask for asylum is that there is a credible fear interview that's done often in Spanish. People make judgments. Uh, people are given a date to appear before an immigration court and oftentimes are released into the country. Because of how overburdened the immigration courts are, those hearings can go many years into the future. And uh, the rate of, at which people show up is, is lower than uh, you would like. And so as a sort of way around that, Donald Trump invented these policies or, or promulgated these policies that try to avoid the question altogether by basically saying you have to remain in Mexico or saying that we don't want to see anyone because of, of fear of COVID. And Biden is sort of engaging again in the same proxy war. But the underlying problem, the sort of broken asylum system, is nowhere nearer to be fixed. Yes, that's right. And if you want an illustration of quite what a hard problem this is to fix, even under Title 42, because of the way the legal authority is written, there's no sanction for people who have crossed uh, illegally into America and been deported under Title 42. And so that actually increases the chances that they try to cross again. So an expert I was talking to in this area recently told me that the cartels who run the people smuggling from the Mexican side of the border have a three for one deal at the moment. So you basically get three attempts at crossing into America for the price of one. And the CBP, the Customs and Border Protection Agency, reckons that recidivism has actually doubled. And so there is an argument that actually the spike that we're seeing in illegal border crossings at the moment relates to Title 42. So it seems like whichever way the administration turns on this, they're likely to have a, a worse problem on their hands. Yeah, I was really struck by those numbers as well. I mean, it's either a sign that the alarmism over the migrant numbers is overblown or just another data point that shows the dysfunction of the system. Um, it's been interesting to see the Biden administration talk about what comes next should Title 42 go away. And one of the ideas that they're putting forward is to let officers rather than merely judges look at asylum claims. And the idea is that rather than wait for an asylum case, which could take many years, that instead someone would have their asylum case considered in a matter of six months. The issue that some people have raised with this proposal is that cases may be decided imperfectly, that you might have a less reasoned decision made for why someone gets to stay or why they should be sent out. But I guess my view on that particular proposal is that it seems kind of like a good one, certainly not a perfect one. But are cases decided perfectly now? Probably not. And the present situation of having asylum cases drag on for years seems extremely suboptimal, both for authorities and for the people whose cases are being considered. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to talk about immigration as an election issue and how in some quarters fears over immigration are turning into something much more extreme. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. Charlotte, Idris, what are some of the things that you've particularly enjoyed reading or listening to over the past few days? I'd highlight the coverage by our colleague Rosemary Ward, who went to Buffalo in the wake of the shooting. Rosemary covers New York in the Northeast and is one of the best sourced journalists, I think, among New York's really huge ranks of, of people covering the region. 
I read our very bracing coverage of the coming food security crisis, which I think is prescient. There's not much American discussion of this yet, as far as I can tell. And in particular, there's a very interesting piece about the sheer logistical problem of getting grain out of Odessa, which is heavily mined now, and is something that I had not read very much about before. The thing that made the greatest impression on me over the past few days is a piece that we published online called The Putin Show, which tries to recreate what it's like to be in Russia now and only get your news from you know, state propaganda. There's not much other news in Russia. It takes you through a day in the life of an average Russian media consumer. It's really powerful if you want to understand how Russians are experiencing the war in Ukraine. But to read all of that great stuff, you'll need a subscription. There's a special offer at the moment for listeners at economist.com slash uspod. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. The terrible mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, has brought new attention to an idea called the Great Replacement Theory. It's abhorrent and it was once rather obscure – But it's emerged that a remarkable number of Americans, more than 30%, including 50% of Republicans, according to an Associated Press poll, subscribe to a soft version of that thinking, that there are people in the US trying to replace native-born Americans with immigrants for political reasons. To try and understand why immigration is such fertile ground for conspiracy thinking and how to counter those ideas, I spoke to Ali Nurani, who spent 14 years as head of the Nonpartisan National Immigration Forum and is now at Arizona State University. This is a theory that most recently began, I would say, back in 2013, when Breitbart News, after the 2012 election, really published kind of a a handbook, if you will, for this is who the alt-right is. And since 2013, you've seen kind of the movement evolve or devolve from the alt-right to populism, to nationalism, to Christian nationalism, to where we are now with the Great Replacement Theory. Uh, remember, the last mass shooting of this scale due to white extremist ideology was El Paso in August of 2019. Um, and that that massacre was linked very clearly to what President Trump was saying. So as I've been thinking about this, this is not so much about Tucker Carlson and others, right? Instead of focusing on the purveyor of that message, let's focus on the audience of that message. How do we make the case to, you know, the, I think the majority of Americans who are in the middle, who are seeing their communities change and helping them see that change, diversity, uh, inclusion is good for them and their families. We would engage conservative and moderate faith leaders, law enforcement leaders, business leaders, because they can then help their communities grapple with the change and then ultimately say, you know what? This is to the net benefit of myself and my family. Ali, in that work with sort of pillars of the community on immigration in America and attitudes to immigration, did you see people change their minds often? I mean, this debate seems to me to be one where you have a pro-camp and an anti-camp and hardly anyone moves from one side to the other. When you come across somebody who's a hardcore you know, believer in the idea that sort of immigration is bad, it's spoiling America... How is it possible to reassure such a person and try and win them over? Or do you just have to stop at the reassuring? Instead of trying to craft a narrative that is black versus white, one versus two, um, really trying to craft a narrative that is is as complicated as the issues that our nation is contending with, Uh, but not expect them to go from no to yes in one conversation or in one story. 
What we found is that the driving question when it came to economic factors around immigration was, are immigrants and refugees, are they givers or are they takers? And the takers part was not just taking a job, but it's also this idea of an immigrant or refugee taking a program or a service. So I think that, you know, the national data is all well and good. On the whole, it paints a very clear picture that immigrants and immigration are a net economic benefit to the American public. But at a local level, that's where this tension plays out. Um, And that's why I think it's so important that it is local media, it is local leaders who are saying, you know what, our schools are growing, Um, our community is growing, our economy at a very, very, very local level is growing because of an influx of people who are immigrants. And you you don't have to dig very deep to find rural towns and cities um, who are, are benefiting economically because of an increase in immigration. Where should pragmatists in the Biden administration now focus their efforts if they want to make progress towards the goal of having a more coherent and more humane immigration policy? I think pragmatists in the Biden administration need to convene allies from the left and the right on the outside, but also on the Hill, and actually broker a compromise to try to to secure the border, protect dreamers, and ensure a functioning system for the agricultural sector. Um, there is a, quite a bit of momentum in this space. Over the last few months, we've seen you know Senators Tillis, Durbin, and others. So pragmatists in the Biden administration need to approach this pragmatically and bring together the players who can say, okay, let's get to 60 votes in the Senate. I always admire your optimism, Ali, but 60 Senate votes on anything feels like a stretch right now. Why should this subject be any different? So, you know, in our conversations with Republicans on the Hill, they are grappling with dog catches car syndrome, where Republicans are leading the House and the Senate. The Supreme Court then um, ends the DACA program next spring. And they realize that, oh, my gosh, going into a presidential election, Republicans are on the hook for protecting nearly one million dreamers. So there is a certain incentive for Republicans to try to find a compromise this year you know, before this Congress is up. The question is, you know, can Republicans uh, uh, handle, you know, the the breadth and the depth of the changes that Democrats want, but can Democrats handle the breadth and the depth of, say, border security changes that Republicans will want? Idris, before we get on to the political salience of immigration in the midterms, can we just pause and talk a bit about the great replacement theory, which has been in the news for all the wrong reasons this week? Can you give us a brief sketch of where it comes from? And also, I'd love your sense of how influential it actually is. Great replacement theory is this idea that there is a conspiracy afoot to replace the European descended population of a country, um, in this case, America, with immigrants and their children, and over the long run, to basically change the culture and nature of a country entirely. Um, It's in this case, we're talking about America, but, you know, ideas like this have had a lot of currency in France as well. Um, It featured in their election where some candidates like Eric Zemmour, you know, scored reasonably highly in the first round. But you see this all over the place, right? Do you see it um, in Israeli policymakers are concerned about the demographic fertility of the Palestinians, right? And what what that means for citizenship. Um, And the reasons for that are are 
somewhat understandable. Political scientists have long known that people form in groups and out groups. And when there is a fear of the out group becoming more politically salient and viable, the in group kind of reacts. Mm. And I think Donald Trump identified that well. And we see that the nativism that he espoused has really taken over the party. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, all people who voted for Trump are adherents to the Great Replacement Theory. But uh, a version of that thinking is quite powerful within the Republican Party right now. As with many conspiracy theories, it just doesn't stand up to reality at all. I mean, if you do any reporting on the southern border, as Alexandra has, the idea that there's an organized conspiracy afoot there, when in fact the reality is the administration is trying and failing to deter people from crossing the border, you know, it's really, really hard to hold. And yet, nevertheless, this idea, the soft version, is quite widely held Idris, does it seem likely to you that immigration will be a determining factor in the midterms? I mean, it does seem that its political salience at the moment is pretty high. And this generally, this seems to happen whenever Democrats in the White House. I think it will be important in the midterms. I don't know that it is going to motivate anyone to switch their vote. But I think that the, the fear of illegal immigration going out of control is a really motivating factor for Republicans. Political scientists talk about the force of negative partisanship, the idea that the other side is so awful that you vote for our side, even though we don't have a coherent policy. The Republican solution on, on immigration is is unlikely to, to come to fruition either. But in the absence of a real sort of policy of their own, saying that Biden has completely failed at the border is a good way to get people to vote for you anyway. It's interesting to see how it's motivating on both sides. So I was looking at the polling on this and support for immigration rose for Democrats really uh, in a remarkable way since 2016. So Trump seems to have been a galvanizing force in that way. Uh, On Republicans, you know, it's striking the share of Republicans who say it's the most important issue, even more important than the economy is 17 percent, which is a pretty big share, you know, more than jobs in the economy or more than foreign policy. That seemed like a high number to me. But the Cato Institute had some interesting polling as well to to help illuminate what about immigration is so troubling. And I was struck by some of the data that showed there was some support among Republicans for allowing illegal immigrants to seek a path to legal status, particularly for dreamers. But they were really, really negative on asylum. So in particular, asylum from South America, which I think highlights the degree to which the idea of the border, the idea of an invasion is what so captures the imagination of many Republicans. And when you're looking at questions about immigrants who are already in their own communities, it's not an overwhelming positive reaction, but it's less extreme in particular than their opinions on border migrants. I I think the other thing to give credence to is legitimate feeling of of unfairness that a country is a uh, a nation of laws and that there are set procedures for for who enters into a border and skipping the line, and there is a long line of people who are waiting to enter, should not be rewarded. Yes, that's right. We'll be back in a moment to talk more about that debate over fairness. And Idris, you're going to be giving us a closer look at just how far some individual states are now diverging from the rest of the country on this issue. The Economist's office in New York City is a few blocks away from the office of the governor, Kathy Hochul. So whenever people want to get her attention, 
we tend to have a pretty good view. One morning, back in March, the street was full of protesters. They were getting ready to march 150 miles north to the state capital of Albany in support of a policy called the Excluded Workers Fund. Well, the pandemic, I think, shone light on like the inequities that our immigrant populations face. And I represent a district that's 62 percent immigrant. Not all are. Jessica Gonzalez Rojas is a Democratic member of the state assembly from Queens. She says the need for the fund became clear early on in the pandemic as the first federal stimulus checks started being sent out. We started organizing with the immigrant community to fight for an excluded workers fund, um, acknowledging how essential we are to the economy. Um, and yet excluded from the supports that every other New Yorker gets. A fund of $2.1 billion was established last summer to do exactly that. It sent payments of more than $15,000 to some 130,000 people in New York. Deanna Cruz at the Columbia County Sanctuary Movement argues that its impact was transformative. For example, we had one community member. She got sick with COVID at the very start of the pandemic as well as her husband and her three daughters. Because they, ha- they lack legal status, they were unable to access health insurance, and they quickly racked up a significant amount of money in medical debt. So our community members were able to use that money for immediate needs, such as buying food, uh, and then for much bigger cost. But it was very unfortunate because the funds quickly ran out. Expansions of benefits to undocumented immigrants in America is a relatively recent experiment. Since the 1st of May, California has extended Medicaid, the health insurance program for the poor, to undocumented residents over the age of 50. It was already covering health insurance for those under the age of 26. And in his most recent budget announcement, the governor, Gavin Newsom, proposed that the state cover the final missing group, those between the ages of 26 and 50. California is poised to be if this proposal is... Uh, supported the first state uh, in the country to achieve universal access to health coverage. In essence, this would offer Medicaid as a right to all low-income Californians. Regardless of immigration status, regardless of their age, regardless of their immigration status, full implementation will initiate January 2024 if this is approved. Kathy Hochul has put New York on a similar path by signing a budget in April that provides Medicaid for elderly, undocumented residents above the age of 65. But progressive lawmakers like Ms. Gonzalez-Rojas had been campaigning for New York to go much further. They wanted $3 billion more to be added to the Excluded Workers Fund, as well as more health care and child care benefits to go to the undocumented. That agenda has largely stalled. There was so many competing priorities this year, and it just didn't make it to the top, and I think largely because of the potential political ramifications in an election year. I, that's my assessment personally um, for members who might be in more marginal districts or might feel more vulnerable to, you know, the relentless attacks by Republicans on how we're spending our tax money. In deep blue states like New York and California, there is little Republican opposition can do about these programs. But Rob Ort, the minority leader of the New York State Senate, argues that these policies create a promise that will draw more undocumented immigrants to the state. He told me that once a state starts to provide identification, unemployment benefits, health care, and in the case of New York City, voting rights in local elections, that they are conferring de facto citizenship on people who 
shouldn't legally be in the country. Supporters argue these policies improve economic output and are also a moral imperative. That money goes back to the local economy, back into the hands of small business owners. One of the major lessons that we can take from COVID-19 is that when we leave some people behind, we all ultimately are paying the price. They argue that undocumented immigrants make up a disproportionate share of the essential workers in America, and that two-thirds of them have lived in the country for more than a decade. They pay into the system and don't get the money back. Asked whether or not she is concerned that the state's generosity might draw in more undocumented immigrants, Ms. Gonzalez-Rojas is not worried. I welcome undocumented communities. I know they fuel our economy. They make our neighborhoods richer, more vibrant. As long as the services are provided, I think we'll have a very vibrant economy. Idris, I remember being with you back in March when that protest was going past the New York office. How big a departure is this, you know, the offering of benefits to undocumented migrants from what's happened before in America and also from what other countries do? So states have for a long time resisted deportation orders from the federal government. They they say that they won't help immigration authorities carry out deportations, which is one thing. But if you can imagine what's going on now, it's it's similar to the city of London deciding that they would give housing benefits to folks that the home office had turned away. And what's interesting is that in countries where there is a more unified immigration policy, there's generally uh, some degree of guardrail around the welfare state. And there's this idea that, you know, even if you were to go to Scandinavia, for example, especially if you were to do so illegally, you wouldn't immediately qualify for the generous uh, benefits that are there. The reason that this is happening in America is basically the blue state frustration with Congress's inability to do anything to create a pathway to citizenship for the 10 million uh, or so undocumented immigrants who are in America. It's a sort of interesting divergence that you're seeing on, on the blue state side. What you're seeing on, on for red states is increasing hostility to, to immigrants. So uh, Greg Abbott, who you mentioned, is, is was uh, busing uh, folks to D.C. as a sort of vituperative sign against Biden, has also said that he would like the Supreme Court to reverse its precedent and no longer require the state of Texas to pay to educate undocumented children. So... If you step back and look at what's happening in the country, particularly in the national context, you see this sort of balkanization. Yes, I think that the model that America is presenting to the world is deeply weird, and it kind of plays into the Chinese caricature of America's inability to govern itself, just the enormous divergence in policies from one state to the next. I think that the reaction that you see in blue states It's interesting because I'm not sure, you know, if you did not have a Trump presidency, I don't know that it's a counterfactual, we'll never know, but I'm not sure that there would be this type of support for these programs. Given Trump, it doesn't seem particularly surprising to me that this is happening. I mean, he talked about immigrants as invaders during the Trump presidency. We saw children in cages. It was this consistent dehumanization of people who were coming across the border And so I guess it's not that surprising to me that Democrats in some of these states with really large majorities would try to treat them as humans and residents like any other residents of the state. I think the question will be what happens when there isn't a budget surplus, um, in part right now because of support that went to states under Biden's stimulus 
you have states that are pretty flush with cash. Unfortunately for the undocumented immigrants we're talking about, this enormous surge of support is obviously helpful, but it's really not permanent, right? I mean, without action on the federal level, there continues to be a state of uncertainty for for millions and millions of people. Charlotte, you make a really good point about Trump as an accelerant of these sorts of divisions in America. Idris, it strikes me that the Republicans will have the better of the politics on this one. I mean, the idea that Democrats are offering, let's put this in Fox News terms, Democrats are offering benefits to people who've broken the law, crossed into the country illegally, is pretty powerful stuff politically. Yeah, I think that um, for a long time, Democrats have maintained that the reason that we need comprehensive immigration reform is that undocumented workers are paying taxes, aren't receiving any benefits, and that's a a woeful state of affairs. And now that's going to become muddied a bit. And I think it, it might make the politics of reform harder, while at the same time giving some substance to the sort of paranoid uh, nativist style within the Republican Party, which is dominant. Um, it's it's a bad situation, right? Because you understand the impulse. You understand a lot of this population now has been in America for decades. They're not going anywhere. What do you do about it? Do you, do you just pretend like they don't exist? It's understandable that people would want to do something about it. But by the same token, I don't know that you're making it any easier to move folks out of that liminal state by creating these programs. So I, I think it's a, it's a tough bind. Like everything that we've talked about, um, every aspect of this seems to tighten the, the Gordian knot a bit more. Yeah, I'm afraid I think you're probably right about that. In hope of giving you both a simpler problem to solve, here's the quiz. <laughs> this week was also a big one on the Hill for anyone interested in extraterrestrial activity with the first public congressional hearings on UFO sightings since 1966. A decade earlier, The Economist reviewed the first ever dossier of such sightings by a special US Air Force investigator. Most were explained as weather balloons, optical illusions, and so on. But we wrote that the report left, quote, a crawling feeling of discomfort, of contact with the inexplicable, that more enthusiastic believers in sources have been unable to convey. Question one. Which state regularly reports the most sightings of inexplicable aerial phenomena? Texas? New Mexico. According to the National UFO Reporting Center, which does indeed exist, it's California. The area that reports the fewest is the District of Columbia, apparently. So make of that what you (laughs) will. So that's just like a population map. That's just like 50 million people versus 700,000. This is not population adjusted. So I guess D.C. has a bigger population than some states, right? Yeah, more than uh, North Dakota, I think. The alien's just not that interested in Bismarck. Yeah, exactly. Okay, question two. The first recorded UFO sighting was by John Winthrop, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1639. Winthrop was certainly an original. What phrase, now overused by journalists to denote or denigrate American exceptionalism, is he best known for? City on a Hill. Well done. City on a Hill is the right answer. In the sermon delivered to the Puritan colonists just before setting sail from England in 1630, he said, For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Still true, though not always in a good way. Did he also coin yins? 
Did you know there was a there was a literary magazine from the Pittsburgh region called the New Yinzer? This is an absolute treasure trove. Like the New Yorker. That's so good. If you're a listener in Pittsburgh who frequently uses the phrase yins, then please do get in touch with us. If you could send us some recordings of the correct pronunciation, that would also be appreciated. We might use some of those on the next Pennsylvania podcast. Charlotte and Idris, let's leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan and Nico Rofast with research by Noor Abraham. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. Please keep those pictures of where you're listening coming. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. 